Hi, I'm Evie. I'm just going to be reading from uh, Mark chapter 2, which is inside your outline. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, Get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Good afternoon. Um, I'm going to pray. Uh, If you don't feel like praying, you can just have a sleep. Let's pray. Uh, Lord God, thank you for this uh, day which comes to us from your hand. Thank you for the safety that has brought us to it. Uh, Our God, we thank you for the brains that you've entrusted to us, the opportunities at university for them to be developed and uh, to explore the world you've made. And we ask now that uh, you would help us to understand things that are true, to reject things that are nonsense, and help me to speak clearly and interestingly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the passage is there if you'd like to follow it from Mark chapter 2. There's a large, ugly, wild pig that lives out near Cobar that I would like to kill. Uh, Not because I like bacon, which I do. Uh, If it's still alive, I want to kill it because it was the direct cause of an accident that a family member of mine was in that left my sister Bronwyn a quadriplegic. And um, I've talked to Bronnie, if it's it's okay for for me to mention her in a talk. And uh, so I have no great love for this pig. It would probably be fairly fruitless to kill it if it's still alive. But on the more constructive side, if I could have found a doctor who could rightly analyse what the problem was with Bronwyn and more importantly than that, heal her, I would have spared no expense, no trouble would have been too great in order to help her find healing. Although with Bronwyn, you don't really need a great uh, diagnosis doctor like this particularly handsome fantasy figure whose skill it is to diagnose what's wrong with people and therefore sometimes quite simply to heal and to cure. Um, Because the problem with my sister's illness is not the difficulty in working out what the problem is. We know what it is. The the sort of telecommunication cables have been broken. Therefore, the muscles can't respond. And therefore, as you'll know, what happens with that is the muscles simply waste away. So even if you could heal the initial problem with my sister, she'll never, ever walk again. The muscles that you build up as a child, all gone. But I would if I could. I I might even bribe the nurse uh, or the uh, secretary to get my sister bouncing up the queue if there was a doctor who could heal the unhealable, which there isn't, sadly. But you'll know that one of the extraordinary things about Jesus and one of the reasons why nobody wanted to miss him 
when he was on earth, if they had sickness in themselves or in their friends, was because of his apparent ability to heal the unhealable. And so one of the reasons I want to suggest to you to not miss Jesus is he is the ultimate doctor. And even if you're very, very well now, I think you'll know the advantage of having access to a good medical system and an excellent doctor. And so we're going to look here at Jesus dealing with a sickness. And as you would expect with Jesus, he does the unexpected. If your impression of Jesus is that he does the ordinary, you probably never watched him. He is constantly shocking his enemies and his friends, both then and now. So we're going to look at Jesus as the doctor uh, who is able to deal with kind of interesting sicknesses and a very different diagnosis of what your main problem is, what your greatest need is, to the one that you and your culture will have uh, come up with probably. Looking at verse 1 of chapter 2 in Mark, which is the earliest biography of Jesus. A few days later when Jesus again entered Capernaum, which clues you to the fact he's been in this town before, you can read about that in chapter 1. He enters in verse 21 and leaves in verse 38 and he leaves behind a mass of sick people who have gathered to be healed by him and he won't go back and heal them because he's got something more important. He's left behind a bunch of people who've come to be healed. He returns to Capernaum, a little town near the Sea of Galilee. The people heard that he'd come home, so many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. He returns, a crowd gathers, and why are they there? Well, I think it's pretty clear when you read through the Gospel of Mark, they don't gather in order to learn, they don't gather in order to talk, they gather in order to experience something. Um, They gather in order to see something. They gather in order to feel something. They gather to be healed. Or we know from chapter 1 and this chapter that they bring their loved ones to be healed. They may not, in fact, they couldn't possibly know who Jesus was. But they couldn't avoid the fact that they met people who had been healed by Jesus and therefore they were interested in getting their own friends healed. Now, here's the problem. We naturally think, oh, bull. This is a nice fairy tale for children we're modern or even better, we're postmodern, scientific sort of people. I don't want to, that's too clashy words in postmodern scientific. But anyhow, you know where we live. Uh, we live on the other side of the scientific revolution, thank God. And we know miracles don't happen. We know that. So no matter how much evidence you bring, we know it can't be true because we know miracles don't happen. So all the evidence you like makes no difference because our worldview stays intact. And I used to mock the Christians who I knew before I became a Christian for believing ridiculous stories kiddie stories about magic tricks that Jesus could do and they all lived happily ever after. And it was only after I left school that I finally took up the challenge to actually, rather than just dismiss with very confident arrogance, to actually look at the evidence about Jesus for myself. That I discovered you don't only have to rely on the Gospel of Mark or John or these sort of things, biased public relations document, Um, but you can read the other documents from the time. There's a highly literate culture. It was a Jewish culture. They do love reading and writing and learning. Did then, do now. And you can read the Jewish writings about Jesus. I mean, all the New Testament are Jewish writings too, of course. But here's two that are not Christian. The Talmud, a book still studied in the Jewish community, a collection of um, Jewish rabbinic reflections on the scriptures and then reflections on that rabbi's work and then reflections on that rabbi's work. You can see by the way, the odd way in which it's set out. It's a series of reflections and comments and they speak in the Talmud. 
the rabbis of Jesus' time speak about Jesus, Yeshu. And they speak about his disciples, they speak about his execution, they speak about when it happened, they speak about why it happened. And they speak in this particular one, Sanhedrin 43a, Yeshu, Jesus, was executed because he practised sorcery. They do speak about what he said, which we're going to come to. But what they say is he practised, that is he did, sorcery. What is that? This is not a, a verbal thing, this is an action thing. He does things that his enemies describe as magical powers enabled by the evil one. Because see, unlike us, they can't just bury their head in the sand and say, oh, the, the miracles don't happen. They had to deal with the fact that Palestine was full of people who'd been healed. And you couldn't pretend, even if you didn't like Jesus, as the rabbis of his day didn't on the whole, you couldn't pretend they didn't happen. You had to work out an explanation for the evidence that was walking around in front of you. Their evidence, their uh, conclusion was, not this is power that comes from God because this is a once in a universe entrance of God into his universe in a physical, touchable, tangible way. But this is a deception from the evil one. Now the works of Josephus, a Jewish general captured by the Romans who then wrote a book called The Antiquities of the Jewish People. He wrote a few other books as well. He's much more neutral. The Talmud, quite fairly, doesn't like Jesus and they write honestly from their own perspective on him. Josephus is much more moderate. He's kind of neutral. He speaks somewhat respectfully of Jesus and he he says uh, in the book in chapter 18... Jesus was a doer of wonders. He says he's a, he's a speaker of wisdom. and a, what, what are they, What's he referring to? I think it's obvious. These are referring to the fact that strange, wonderful, powerful things happened around Jesus. And that's why people gathered to see him, to watch, to experience. Large crowd. Verse 3. Some men came bringing to him a paralysed man carried by the four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat that the man was lying on. So you go from the crowd, the camera pans back and you see a little platoon of men carrying a friend and a stretcher. Men with a mission, people of purpose, all that sort of stuff. They, They are heading to Jesus for a particular thing. They have a friend. Or perhaps more importantly, he has friends. He's paralysed, he's crippled. Uh, this is one of the stories that I'm particularly fascinated in. And those friends love him enough to carry him to Jesus. It is my own suspicion that they were part of the crowd last time Jesus was in Capernaum that couldn't get to him because they begin to do really stupid things, ludicrous things. Things that unless you were brought up on this story in Sunday school or something, you'll think this is just wacky. Because they get to the house where Jesus is. Let me show you about the houses. We've actually dug up some of the houses down in Capernaum thanks to archaeology. Uh, the spaceshipy thing on the top there, sorry, on the top there, that's a, a sort of a Greek Orthodox church thing built over what most archaeologists agree is almost certainly the very house that Peter lived in in Capernaum. There's all sorts of graffiti in the rocks and there's very good reason to think. But these are the, the sort of the foundations, the base layers of the houses in Capernaum. And uh, they say you can find anything on the net. I was unable to find a good picture of first century houses in Capernaum. Why wouldn't that be on the net? All right? Plenty of pornography. Why is there not one good picture? I don't know that personally. That's just why I've read about it. Um, <laughs> why is there not one good picture of houses in Capernaum? Anyhow, that's the best I could find. And that's not bad because it gives you the picture. No need for architects there, I'm sorry. Uh, just rectangles. Well, perhaps that is, a, that is a form of architect. I don't know what it is, but I'm sure. Anyhow, there it is. 
with the, with the steps up the side. Uh, rectangular houses, roofs made. The size of the house was determined by the length of the timber in the area, which is about six metres. And they laid it across with a, you know, about three quarters of a metre between them. Then they put a cross at palm branches. Then they put clay over that. Then they put dirt over that and rocks and other things. Normally about that thick. So these guys can't get their friend to Jesus. So they don't do the obvious thing, which is to wait near the only door out the front of the place, which is what most of us would do. They are desperate. They are determined. My theory, for what it's worth, and it's not worth that much, is that they were in the crowd in chapter 1 who had sick people there when Jesus left and they were not letting that happen again. They are convinced that Jesus can help their friend. They are not sure if he's going to hang around. Last time he nicked off. So they do what is really ludicrous. They go up the stairs up the outside, as you can see in that bad picture. They work out where Jesus is and they begin to dig through the roof. This is one of the numerous small details in the Gospels that indicate these are written by people living in Palestine, first century Palestine. If they were just Romans writing away, they would have spoken about taking off the tiles. But the houses, you dug through them. About three quarters of a metre. They had their Swiss Army knife. They were Boy Scouts. They were prepared. They got stuff. And you can imagine you in the Jesus teaching. You're listening away, you know, just like you are. Um, he was significantly more interesting um, and worth listening to. But, um, you know, the people are listening and Jesus, and they hear noise scratching around up there. You think, you know, you can imagine, it's almost certainly Peter's house. So Peter's thinking, ah, oh, that's not blooming Palestinian possums. And, and the trouble is you can't just kill them now like you used to in the old days because of the green. You've got to catch them in traps and release them in the Karingai National Park. You know, it's such a nuisance now. So he's, you know, this is Jesus' teaching and, and this racket's going on. And um, he's probably getting a glare from his wife saying, I told you to get rid of those possums. But um, anyhow, noise going on and on, Jesus teaching. And you can put up with a certain amount of distraction. But finally, it gets quite rackety. And then, boom, a bit of dirt begins to fall. A few people covered in muck. And some light comes. Oh, look, a sunlight, unasked for, unpaid for. And the light begins to stream in. And perhaps there's a sweaty little face looks through. And then does Jesus keep talking? At some stage he has to stop and the hole gets bigger and bigger and bigger and then there's a weird people watching trying to work out what's going on and then suddenly down comes a sort of stretchery mat thing held up by ropes and this bloke is in a fairly ungainly sort of way let down. And not even Jesus can keep talking when that happens. At some point you have to give in to the distraction. And it says in verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralysed man, how do you see faith? Well, you see it in the way you normally see faith. You see it by the actions. If you've got faith and trust in someone, in the end you'll show it by how you act. They show their faith in Jesus because they are doing anything to get their mate to Jesus. Even though we can't heal paralysis. They understood that Jesus could. So they lower him down and Jesus says, verse 11, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. Well, that's not what he said yet, is it? That's what he should have said. That's why his friends brought him. That's what any sensible, practical, loving person with power and authority would do. They'd heal the bloke. Look at these guys. They've ruined their friendships with their their neighbours. You think Peter's sitting there going, oh, this is good. Thank you so much. Do come for dinner tonight, friends. Uh, We're not told here because there's a lot of details. Unnecessary details aren't told us in these stories. Uh, I, I'm, I imagine, frankly, looking at Peter, he was probably yelling abuse. What are you doing, you idiot? Anyhow, down it comes. What do they want him to do? They want Jesus to heal. 
Can't he see the man's problem? If I've gone to all this trouble to get my friend to the only person, or get my sister to the only person on the planet who has ever been able to do what Jesus I know what I want. I want practical, caring action. Roll up the sleeves and do something real. What does Jesus do? Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, if you're the friends, what do you think you're feeling when you hear those words? Son, your sins are forgiven. Well, I'll tell you what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, well, that's just lovely. Uh, That's really nice, Jesus. Thank you for talking about my friend's sins publicly, as if he's the worst sinner in the world. Uh, And and thank you for giving us such pious bits of information. Um, I'm feeling, if I can use a technical word that won't be beyond you, I'm feeling cheesed off at this point. I'm very annoyed and disappointed. Jesus has not done the obvious thing he should do. Can't he see? Doesn't he understand? He can see the man isn't blind. He can see you know, he, he, what he needs done. Why does Jesus do that? You, Jesus is always doing unusual things. You know, he leaves sick people. Although he's been healing them the night before, he, in chapter 1 he leaves sick people because he says, I've got something even more important than healing the incurably ill. Hear what he says. Here's a man with a deadly serious illness. Jesus seems to see that there is something far more serious, far more urgent, far more important. If he's only going to do one thing for this man, he's going to go for the most important. So he says to him, your sins are forgiven. Now, I don't want to swear at you, but just for a few minutes, let's talk about sin. It's a funny thing, sin. It's a thing that we love to do but hate to talk about. Uh, like to think about the doing of it sometimes, but hate to think about what it is, why we do it, and what the consequences are. For most of us, sin is an addiction which we simply cannot stop. We are overpowered by a force greater than ourselves. We rabbit on about being free, but we're addicted to selfishness. And it's deeper and more serious than that. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, 1 John is a letter written by John, one of the first disciples of Jesus. He says this, Sin is, I like definitions, sin is lawlessness. Speaking in the context of God, who is the great giver of good, true and serious laws. This is his world, he made it, he owns it. He is therefore the rightful ruler of it, therefore the rightful lawgiver over it and he will judge us by his laws. That is the clear teaching of the Bible and certainly the clear belief of Jesus that you are living in someone else's world. The brain that you have that you think with is a gift entrusted to you by someone else and the king is the giver of the law. Sin is lawlessness. See, it's not that we break God's law. That is, if you like, sins, particular actions. It is an attitude long before it's an action. Sin produces sins. The attitude is that of lawlessness, where you communicate to God that you are not frankly interested in what he has to say about what is true and right and good and evil. You will decide. Now, You may draw a few bits of ideas from what you think he teaches, but in personal terms, you are the lawmaker. Autonomous me. 
with all my infinite wisdom, entirely culturally shaped and conditioned, believing a whole lot of things are self-evidently true, purely because of what country I've been brought up in, what century I was born in, but rabbiting on about our great wisdom and freedom. God is the lawgiver. And we say to God, I will make the laws up. I will decide what is good and evil. And we say to God, get out. Don't even dare to tell me how to live. And people who do try to tell us what God says, they're just imperialists trying to control us. Now the question is, are you a lawless person? Or do you know God to be the lawmaker? It's not that we're lawbreakers. All of us do that. We disobey God at times. But it's that we actually say, I will not acknowledge God's position as the lawmaker. Sin is an attitude that leads to actions. And the so whatness of, apart from what it does to our families, apart from the various sins that we subsequently get enslaved to and become addicted to, we can't trust each other. We have to keep secrets from each other. Our families break down. Our culture is in trouble. We spend billions of dollars on arms and billions of dollars on entertainment because we're so desperate. All these things come from this original difficulty. We mistreat God. We are alienated from our true selves. We don't know who we are. We are cut off from God. And according to Jesus, that cut-offness from God, if not dealt with, will lead to an eternity of cut-offness from God and all that comes from God. What we call, sadly sometimes as a joke, hell. There is nothing more serious or more deadly than the way that we treat God. That in our heart of hearts, we want God to drop dead. Oh, except when I'm in trouble. Then get down here and help me. But in the daily business of living, we do not want God because we're going to be the lawmaker. It is deadly, it is sin, and it is the heart of evil. You can be a thoroughly decent person. Spend quite a bit of your spare time in important charitable works good fun to have around and yet at the heart be profoundly evil if you treat God whose universe you live in as if he has no place as the real God, owner and maker and judge of all. And Jesus sees this man like you, like me, like my sister, has a problem with sin. So he goes for the key thing first. Your sins are forgiven. So I don't talk about sin just to make you miserable. But, you know, a decent doctor will sometimes speak about unpleasant stuff so that you take it seriously. A member of my family got a sickness that they're going to live with for the whole of their life and the doctor spent quite a bit of time telling us how this sickness works and what it will do to you if you don't look after yourself. And they did scare us. And they did it because they loved us and they loved our family member. Not to take what is serious seriously can be dreadful. What Jesus says is, your sins are forgiven. And some years ago I was prowling around the rocks down in Sydney and unfortunately this shop was broken down. There was a little printing press. You could buy a pardon, which they said was a copy of the sort of pardons they used to give to convicts. And I bought it because I, I, I needed some retail therapy. <laughs> and I bought it particularly because of the last paragraph, which you mightn't be able to read, so I'll read it to you. Let it be known that all past crimes, misdemeanours and acts of dissent, that's probably for the Irish. <laughs> Let it be known that all past crimes, misdemeanours and acts of dissent, that's acts against the Crown, have now been considered to have been placed in the past. The penalty for such having been served 
has now received a full and free pardon and is now eligible for all the lawful privileges of the colony. That's a great thing to get if you've been in prison. A pardon, a full and free pardon. Now, forgiveness is a personalised pardon. That is, it's a pardon in the area of your personal life. That's how James Packer describes it. Pardon in a personal setting. It frees you from the consequences of past crimes, past lawlessness, sin and sins. Or as the US Supreme Court says in one of its rulings on a pardon, because the American president is able to do two things on their own. As I understand it, only two things the US president can do absolutely on their own. That is, declare war, which is a bit of a bummer, and secondly, give pardons. In any jurisdiction in the United States, the President can give a pardon and he has a number of different sorts he can give. The US Supreme Court has sometimes been challenged on this question. They said this, a pardon blots out guilt and makes the offender as innocent as if he had never committed the offence. This is what Jesus says to the man. Your sins are blotted out and the offender is now as innocent as if he had never committed the offence. That is what forgiveness is. That's what pardon is. That's what that man needs and that's what Jesus gives to that man. The forgiveness of sins. Now, it's not like these things. You know, this wonderful Christian game Monopoly. Um, Go to jail. I like this one because it's a white collar. Those who are doing economics, be careful. This is one of you guys when you get out and it's successful. Uh, And I think it is a bloke because it's got a moustache. Go to jail. Go directly to jail. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. But that gets trumped if you've got this card. Get out of jail free. Now, forgiveness is not about having a get out of jail free card. You tuck it away in your pocket. You think, okay, I've got the God thing sorted out when I stand before God on that great, terrible day, which I will before him. I've got my get out of jail card somewhere here and I can say to God, yeah, 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 I've got one of these. See, I'm forgiven. It's not like that. Forgiveness with God is not just about freeing you from the fair and just consequences of your selfishness, both now and forever. But it's actually about freeing you from the past so you can have relationship with God. And and I mean these words seriously. Friendship with God. Fellowship with the Creator. You can actually get to know God as a friend. And he will treat you as a friend. See, when the president gives pardons to criminals, he does not want them to come and live in the White House with him. If you got this, although it was authorised in the name of the Queen, it's not so you can head back to England and enjoy living in Buckingham Palace. You're just let out of prison. But the forgiveness God gives is to make it possible for you to have an unthinkable future where you can live in friendship and fellowship and even more in the family with God. That when I got forgiven in my first year of high school, it took me a while before it sunk in, not only am I forgiven, but I can call the God who made the entire universe, which is a mind-boggling concept to even get close to, Dad, Father. And he loves me like any father should, and sadly we don't. That's what forgiveness entitles you to. It deals with a terrible problem and opens up a wonderful possibility. That's what Jesus says. He is ultimately the ultimate doctor. But there's more. 
He does make unparalleled claims. Now, what's important here is to, if you want to understand Jesus, to take note of how the people of his day reacted to what he said. I'm amazed at the number of people who live you know, in 21st century Australia, very different culture to the Jewish culture in the first century, who instead of listening to what do the contemporaries of Jesus make of what he says, they make their own... And this, this is true of little cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses. When they run into many of the statements of Jesus, they don't say, how did people in his day hear him? Often Jesus will say something that seems to us quite innocent and the people of his day try to kill him. And in the end, these sorts of words that Jesus said led to his death. Let's have a look at how the religious, the teachers of the law, that is the law of Moses, how they respond. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking. So he said, no, 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 that's not what I meant. No, he doesn't say that. Right? He doesn't argue with their perception. They are dead right to ask this question. Although Jesus is an unparalleledly beautiful human being and all sorts of people who are not Christians, H.G. Wells, Napoleon, all sorts of interesting people say, look, we're not Christians, but there has never been a more beautiful, more substantial, more excellent human being that's lived on the earth. Take someone like Einstein. I'm a Jew, he says, but I'm enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. No one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates through every word. No myth is filled with such life. There is this strange thing with Jesus of this extraordinary attractiveness about him and real beautiful humility in his deeds and the way he relates to people. And yet, at the same time, there's something deeply disturbing and chilling about Jesus. He says things that I think it's fair to say no other serious figure in history says. No other prophet, enlightened man, anything like that, gets close to saying what Jesus says, which is frankly why he ends up being crucified, because they kill him in the end, according to Mark 14, for exactly the reason they get upset with him here. This is the first time anyone gets upset with Jesus in the Gospel. And this is also the last thing that they'll get upset with him about. It's blasphemy, which in our culture, thanks to Monty Python, is hard to take seriously. If you've seen some of the Monty Python movies, where blasphemy becomes, a, it, it's a, you know, it's, there's some terrifically funny skits that they do about blasphemy. But for the word blasphemy to come up in that culture is like the word pedophilia. Sorry to bring it up, but to bring up, to say to someone, that's pedophilia. That's charged with all sorts of negativity and danger and seriousness and solemnity and horror. Blasphemy is like that when it's understood. Blasphemy is for a tiny little human and the Bible does understand how tiny we are in the universe and how vast the universe is. This is not a new discovery. We can now put numbers to it, not that they're very meaningful, but Psalm 8 is well and truly aware of the fact that we are tiny little creatures in a vast universe. And for a tiny little creature on the planet to confuse himself or herself with God to think that you can draw an equation between who you are and who God is, is insanity. It is blasphemy. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And they rightly say, hang on, hang on, hang on. Who is this fellow? Who is this person? No one can forgive sins except God. See, sin is ultimately an attack on God. Uh, a little while ago, the engine on my little yacht, my 12-foot tinny, was stolen. 
they sinned against me. And mind you, I don't want any sympathy. Thank you. It's a complete luxury toy. In terms of human suffering, having your outboard motor, even though it's a beautiful 15 horsepower Yamaha, you know, which has been replaced by my generous mum, so there's no tragedy there. Um, but that's not, I won't. Anyway. Um, but before they could nick it from me, they had to sin against God. Because it is God who says, You shall not steal. God puts a fence around me as he does around you. Any act against you is an act against God. All sin is ultimately against God. Secondarily, there'll be human problems. No one can forgive sin except God. If Joe comes up here, gets tired of me talking, yap, 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 and she just loses it, she comes and she kicks me in the soft and tender part like my stomach, which is very easy to hit, and, and I roll over on the floor and then she jumps on me and she spits on me and she, you know, and she says terrible things about me that are true, right? Let's assume, okay, she, we all calm down and she thinks, oh, that wasn't very nice. Um, I will need to forgive her for us to have any sort of a friendship. And frankly, if we're trying to work this out and you come up and say, it's okay, Joe, your selfishness and horrible acts are forgiven, I would probably turn to you and say politely, please mind your own business. This is not ultimately between you and her. It is between me and her. And I cannot stand up and say, your sins are forgiven. It is only God who can announce and who can forgive sins. I might be able to say, listen, here's what the Bible says, and I could do this if you want to talk about it afterwards. Here's what you need to do in order to get forgiveness. Do this and you'll be forgiven. Rejoice. But I can't forgive your sins. For Jesus to say, not in the name of the Lord I declare your sins, but he just says, your sins are forgiven. And he actually says, it's in the present tense, he's saying, your sins are in the process of being taken away. At this very moment of the speak, they're being removed from you. It is blasphemy. It is a disgusting thing to say if you're not God. It is to completely lose your place in the universe. We've got this extraordinary contrast between a beautiful, humble life and the most self-important statements ever made by a human being. And that's why again and again in the Gospels, people try to kill Jesus. Not because he's a dangerous political radical. Right? Far more serious than that. Because you who are a man makers of out to be God is what they say in John 5. For what good work do you stone me, Jesus? They say, for no good work. But because you who are a man make yourself out to be God. And that is serious. And it is unparalleled. And we need to, I think, if we're going to be honest men and women, work out what do I make of Jesus? Not the Jesus that I fillet and make him nice and comfortable, but the real Jesus who both his enemies in the Talmud, there are references in the Talmud, the Jewish writings, to Jesus' blasphemous claims and there are references in the writings of his friends like these ones. To have some sort of intellectual courage to deal with, what am I going to make of this man who makes unparalleled claims? But that is what Jesus makes. That's what he says. He does things and he, he, does things and he says things. People go, hang on. Hang. So when he calms the storm, you know that story, Jesus calming the storm, the wind and the waves. Uh, people go, uh, who, who, is, who is this man? That even the wind and the waves... So they're going, they've got no category to put him in. They never expected God himself to personally visit. They never expected God to become somehow or other one of us. So they had real... What do we make of this man? These guys understood that these words are terribly dangerous and they say, 
Only God can forgive sins. The unparalleled claims of Jesus, they're chilling words, but magnificent if they're true, that God should care that much. Now, friends, lastly, and you've been listening, I know it's lunchtime and it's hard, I'd like to have a few jokes. Did you hear the one about... No. But Because um, it is hard to keep listening when you've been thinking all morning and probably will be thinking all afternoon. At least I hope you will. Thirdly, friends, we're left, of course, with an unavoidable choice in what to do with this man. What Jesus chooses to do is he responds to their question by saying, um, which is easier? Just imagine my sister Brom is here. Which is easier, to say to my sister, get up and walk home, or to say your sins are forgiven? That's obvious, which is easier, isn't it? Because if you say your sins are forgiven, you can't test it, can you? Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Yours aren't, but yours are. You know, you can't tell. Feel forgiveness. Who knows? You know? But if I say, listen, I'll show you that I've got the, the divine authority to forgive sins by doing something else that only God can do. I'll heal a person, both heal the original disease and create muscle. Get up. Walk home. Well, it's obvious which one's harder to say. One's testable. So what Jesus says is, so he turns to the man, he says, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. At which point his friends are saying, at last, we've got the theology out of the way. Now we can get back to the real game. Take up your mat and go home. And once again, the Gospels disappoint us with their inability to tell a good story well. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. No description of the man got up. He wobbled a bit, learning how to work. I mean, you could have really, you could have got some mileage out of this story, but oh no, not the Gospels. Maybe they've just seen too many of these things. He got up, took his mat, walked out in full view, and they were amazed. Oh, really? And they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. The New Testament does not believe miracles happening all the time. They're shocked senseless when they see this. They live in the same world you do. In fact, with even less Miracles in many ways because we get used to them with television and medicine. But Jesus finally does the secondary miracle of the healing, having dealt with the primary miracle of forgiveness. And friends, if you could interview this man, Chris the Cripple or whatever his name was, you could interview him that night, he's lying in bed, he's able to walk, etc. and say, tell us the best thing that happened to you today. He may not have picked forgiveness. Some of these things take a while to sink in. He might have said, I can walk. I can take myself to the bathroom. I can feed myself. I can get a job. A whole new universe has opened up. If you're interviewing today in heaven, in the presence of Jesus, in the presence of the Father, where we know he is because his sins have been forgiven, and said, tell us the best thing that happened to you on that day when you were healed, he would without a doubt say, my sins, which were many, were forgiven. There's nothing more important than that and no one else can forgive your sins except Jesus. C.S. Lewis, professor at Oxford and Cambridge University, was asked once by a bunch, by a student after a talk he gave, what can Jesus give me that I can't get anywhere else? And Lewis apparently immediately answered, forgiveness of sins. It's what he alone can give and it's what you need. If God gave me a choice, which he won't do this, but if God were to say to me, okay, Ian, your sister Bronnie can live and die, I'll heal her or I'll forgive her. Make the choice. There would not be a second to waste. I'd say, no, please, let her live and die, a quadriplegic. 
But please don't let her live and die unforgiven. To be healed rather than forgiven would be a very foolish, short-sighted choice. So that's what lies before us. A choice, whether or not we want to take seriously this question of being pardoned. To receive a pardon like that, but not a plaything, but a pardon and forgiveness from God. I mentioned here about America, the president, this, uh, the guy's face in the middle of the $20 note is President Andrew Jackson. He was caught up in an interesting case that defined some points of American law. I was reading about this last week. I'm not usually reading American constitutional law, but it was fascinating. He wrote a pardon, a full presidential plenary pardon for a man called George Wilson who had been found guilty of a number of serious offences and he was waiting to be put to death. And for reasons that I don't know all the details of, uh, President Andrew Jackson wrote George Wilson a full presidential plenary pardon. So not just to avoid the death sentence but to be released. Not to live with the president, only God treats us like that. But what happened when the presidential pardon was written and delivered and handed to Wilson, he ripped it up. And in the end it went to the US Supreme Court where Chief Justice John Marshall wrote the ruling where he said this, A pardon is a slip of paper, the value of which is determined by the acceptance of the person to be pardoned. If it is refused, it is no pardon. George Wilson must be hanged. Now, I tell you that story not just for a cute... You know, you know I'm telling you. Because he, why does George Wilson die at the end of a rope? Not because a pardon was not available. It was. had his name on it. But because the pardon was not accepted. And if anyone in this room lives unforgiven, alienated from God, no friendship with God, and dies unforgiven, and therefore goes into a godless joyless eternity it is not God's fault in any shape or form he has gone to a terrible amount of trouble to make forgiveness possible through Jesus and his death and if you walk away from it it's your own act so friends that's a serious point to end on but why would you miss Jesus there is no one who understands you like him and knows your deepest needs your deepest weaknesses there is no one who makes claims like him and ultimately there is no one who can forgive you like him. I want to suggest a prayer. A prayer for people. Now, if you've never thought about Jesus before, you might need to say, although, you know, this may be the first time and that's enough, but you might think, I really don't know enough about Jesus. Um, this may not be a prayer for you. In which case, what you'll do is, if you're honest, you'll say, but I am going to find out about him and I'm going to work out how to pursue this question. But some of you might think, yes, I, I know I'm not forgiven. I know a bit about Jesus but I've never asked for forgiveness personally and seriously. This would be a good prayer for you to pray. I've left that up there so you can have a bit of a read. Others of you might think, I'm not sure if I'm forgiven or not. Maybe I am, maybe I'm not. This is far too serious to live with any doubt about. And this would be a good prayer to deal with God over. So it's a prayer that, as you can see, simply admits that we've sinned in attitude and action. Jesus called the friend of sinners by his enemies, which he is. We ask him to forgive us and to begin a new life, fully human again like that man who could walk. I'm going to suggest we pray. Uh, the excitement of students keen to get in here will come. Let's uh, pay attention. That's the purpose sometimes of closing our eyes to not be distracted. I'm going to pr lead phrase by phrase, give you time to echo the prayer to God in your own heart. Um, you can change the words. Nothing magic here but just to say to Jesus, I want what only you can give. Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus... I admit that I've often ignored you 
I have not treated you as you deserve. I have sinned in my attitude towards you and in my actions towards others. But thank you that you came to die for us so that we can be justly forgiven. Jesus, you are the friend of sinners and I admit that I need your forgiveness. So I ask you, please forgive all my sin. Please take away all my guilt. And Lord Jesus, please give me the strength to begin a new life with you as my Master, my Lord, my friend and my coach. Thank you for hearing me. Thank you for forgiveness. Amen. Uh, You may have, if you prayed that prayer and you meant it, you can be certain God has heard you, not because you feel certain emotions particularly, but because he promises if you ask, you receive. You will have begun a new life. I just want to suggest that what, you, what would be a wise thing to do, a thing I didn't do for three months after I became a Christian, was to get some help. You have begun a new life as a Christian if you've asked and sought forgiveness. I didn't ask for any help. I didn't want to tell people I'd become Christian because it, it was sort of uncool. Uh, so my first three months were pretty difficult. That's what these cards are for. So if you've got a moment, you can just jot down my name is whatever, a contact phone number, and perhaps just say, I prayed the prayer, can I have some help? Or you might like to say, gee, I'd like to know more about Jesus, have a look at some of the options. Uh, Do that just quickly and as you leave there'll be buckets you can put them in and we'll get help to you um, privately and carefully. Uh, If you ring us up, if we ring you up and you say, gee, that was a dreadful mistake giving my phone number to a religious organisation, we'll respect your wishes and we won't hound you. But do get help if you've just started or do ask, hey, I'm not convinced, help me to think about this. Thanks for your time.